Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, Proverbs chapter 22, 6, where we left off, it begins with a pretty familiar verse. Some of us are familiar. This may be one of the most familiar verses of Proverbs, at least one of the most familiar verses. This is the verse that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Have you heard of that verse? Have you heard that quota before? Almost all of us here, if we have a little bit of a background around things uh, of the scriptures, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, let me remind you of this important principle that I introduced at the beginning of our study. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, are general principles, not universal promises. They're general principles which almost always work themselves out to be true, but they're not universal promises. So generally speaking, the natural order of things is this. If you train up a child in the way that he should go, when they are old, he will not depart from it. Now that does not mean that if a child strays from the way that he should go, that those of us observing could say, well, then the parent must not have raised them in the way they should go. That doesn't mean that necessarily. And so you don't want to guilt trip yourself or put some pressure on somebody else if their child has wandered away and somehow say that's mom or dad's fault. And it also does not necessarily mean that if a child strays, that the parent is absolutely guaranteed that the child will return someday. It doesn't necessarily mean that. What it does mean is this. Generally speaking, if you impart truth into a child's life when they are young, generally speaking, that truth will take up root. It'll take up residence in that person's life, that child's life, and begin to shape the the direction, the rest of the direction of that kid's life. Many that have been brought up in the things of the Lord stray from the Lord. It's sad. But many that are brought up in the things of the Lord stray from the Lord. There's that old expression that God doesn't have grandchildren, only children. That every person has to make their own decision whether or not they're going to follow the Lord or not for themselves. And a parent, as much as a parent would like to make that decision for their teenager or for their young adult or whatever, a parent can't make that decision. A child has to make it for himself. And so there is a measure of comfort that comes from a verse like this particularly for those who have children that may have strayed from the things of the Lord, there's a measure of comfort when you as a parent know, look, I fulfilled my responsibility. I've passed on the ways of the Lord to my children because then those children have something that they can grasp back onto even if they wander away when they look back and they begin to wonder. And when their heart goes through that searching process that many of us that came to the Lord later in the life, our hearts went through, they'll have something they can reach out to. You know, my mom always used to pray this prayer over me. And they can reach back to it. And the Lord can use that to minister to their hearts. And then, like the prodigal son that you know the story of, they come to their senses. And there's a sense of, what am I doing? Why am I going these places? And doing these things. You see, I lived a lot of that stuff. And I know it's foolishness. I know it's painful. I know it doesn't do me any good. And so in many ways, I don't wrestle with it anymore. Because like, why would I, what? No. I'm not going to eat dirt. Why would I eat dirt? That's stupid. I kid I did. But I'm not going to do that anymore. Or whatever. But our kids, many times that we raise up in the Lord. You get it? They haven't been there. And so now they're trying it out or whatever, and they're thinking these things through. And so we invest into the lives of our kids, and when they come to their senses and they realize this pig is eating better food than I am, they know where to return to. Now, notice this about the verse. It says, train up a child in the way that he should go. It doesn't say train up a child in the way he would go. And so there is a, uh, a model of parenting that essentially says, Find your kid and let your kid sort of direct his life's path. Now, I do think as parents, sometimes we make the mistakes where we we look at our kid and we're like, my kid's going to be an NFL football player. You know, and everything about his life is, and the kid's like five foot two. All right. But everything about his life, he's going to go on to this. Or I want my kid to be the president. And so everything about his life or her life is about that. All right. I think that's a mistake. 
Let your kid to develop to what your kid is going to be. And if you want to be a pro ball player and you didn't make it, that's your problem. You've got to go to counseling for yourself. All right, don't, don't what's the word, project? You're smart. Don't project that onto uh, your kids or whatever. But this idea that, well, let's just let kids sort of find their way in life and whichever way he would go, we're going to encourage him or her in that. That's not parenting. That's a mistake. The Bible says train up a child in the way that he should go. The kids don't know that. And so parents have to pour into their children the way that they should go because left to their own, little Johnny will always go astray. No offense to the Flansbergs who have a Johnny, all right, or little Johnny, wherever you are, all right, I don't know, Sally, Billy, whatever. Left to their own, little Billy will always go astray. And even though we look at little Abigail, uh, what's her name, Reap, little Abigail Reap, that little baby there, even though cutest little baby in the world perhaps, even though, Little Abigail still possesses a depraved and fallen heart, prone to go astray. And I've never met her, but I can say that with certainty because every one of us uh, possesses a depraved and fallen heart. And it's the responsibility of a parent. This is what you are entrusted to as a parent. As a Christian parent, you are entrusted to minister into that little heart, to help that little heart understand the way of wisdom. And why walking in the way of wisdom is for that child's good. This is for your good, these things I'm communicating to you with your child. Now, William McDonald, who's an excellent Bible commentator, he commented, he pointed this out. He said, look, it's not hard to make a child or a tree to grow right, to grow straight, if you train them when they're young. But to make them straighten out after uh, you've allowed things to go wrong is not an easy task. And so you could take a young, tender tree, and if it's beginning to grow sideways, you can get on it right away, and you can attach the cables to it, and you can get it to go straight, grow straight. But if that thing is, is big and solid and this big stump now, it's going to be almost impossible to mend it. And so in the same idea, when you have a young child prone to go astray, astray you can begin to minister into that child's life. Children are born sinners. And when allowed to follow their own desires, will naturally develop sinful habit responses. And those habit, habit patterns, if they're not dealt with when the child is young, they're going to become deep-seated tendencies as the child becomes older. And so it's our responsibility as parents to train up the child in the way that he should go, not the way that he would go. Now, the third point is this. Notice it says train up a child. It doesn't actually say teach a child in the way that he should go, but it says train up a child in the way that he should go. A teacher, and it's, it's a more than semantics, I think, and I'll, I'll make my point here. A teacher tells what to do, but a trainer shows what to do. And if need be, they come alongside and they model how to do that particular thing. And so as parents, it's not enough to simply tell our children what to do. But as parents, we need to show our children what to do. And so we want to pass the faith on to our children. And we could give them a lecture on what it means to walk by faith, or we could model what it means to walk by faith. And the effective means of passing the faith on is when we model it. And our kids then will observe that life of faith and they'll tuck those things away into the recesses of their hearts. If we model obedience, our kids then will see the reality of that obedience in our lives and the blessing that God promises will follow, they'll see that it follows in our lives. And they'll ponder that. They'll tuck it away like Mary did and they'll ponder those things as they're beginning to make decisions for themselves. This next phrase, I was careful with writing this. I wasn't sure about it, but I wrote it anyway, so I'll give it to you. And it's this. I'm not sure there is anything more destructive to a kid's faith than hypocrisy on the part of the parents. I'm pretty sure that's a sound statement to say. Because when your kids are hearing and hearing and hearing, but seeing something different, everything they heard is put aside. Because the truth is what you're living. And so as parents, we know we're not perfect. None of us are perfect and we're going to fall. But even when we fall, in that failure, we have an opportunity to model something else about our faith, which is repentance. And if I fail against my wife, she can model forgiveness. And so we have this opportunity to model these things to our parents or to our children, but not to walk in hypocrisy, 
Such a destructive thing. And so I think Proverbs 22.6, a familiar verse, it's a valuable reminder to each of us as parents. And reality, anybody that is pouring in influentially into the life of another, I think this applies to you as well, that it's not enough to tell those in our charge about Jesus or to warn them of the ways of this world. What our kids really need to see in their mom and in their dad's life is Jesus being lived out. And the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs and the successes and the failures, they need to see those things. And it's when mom or dad are living examples of these words that the reality of these things are observed by children. And children grab a hold and they begin to follow as well. And that's the primary means whereby God seeks to pass down the faith from generation to generation. And so I encourage you in that. Amen? Amen. Let's go on to verse 7. It says, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. Debt is a form of bondage. If you have bills to pay, let me say, let me say it this way. If you did not have bills to pay, would you get up every day and go to work? Some of us would. I love my job. I love what I do. Most of us, no. Nah. I'd get up, I'd go to the beach is where I'd go, or I'd go to the mountains, or I'd sit around and have a lazy morning, and I'd gather with some friends for a late brunch or whatever. Most of us, we wouldn't. Some of us really love the jobs that we do, and we would do it whether they paid us or not. I imagine we'd probably take a few more days off here and there um, because the the money didn't necessarily matter. Um, But most of us, many of us, we can't stand what we do. But we do it because we have bills to pay. And I think that's noble, by the way. You know, this this sort of trend, you got to do what you're passionate for, what you believe in. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do to earn a, an income and to put food on the table. And so I, I think some of that is an American message or like a, wherever there's wealth in a society. But you go to other places in the world and it's like whatever it takes to make 100 bucks today so I could feed my family, you know. And so you just do what you got to do there. Um, But here, so many of us, we can't stand what we do, so we do what we got to do. We have a couple of car loans. We have a mortgage. We have three or four credit cards that are maxed out. We have a line of credit on that mortgage that we're borrowing a little bit more money. And we have those old college loans. We have all these things. That person is really, in reality, no longer free, are they? Now, of course, no one is standing over them with a whip like, you know, a slave driver might do. Nobody is standing over them with a whip. But watch what happens when you stop making your payments on those cars and on those loans and that line of credit and those college loans and so on and so forth. Watch what happens at that particular point in time. Then the reality of your relationship with that lender, then it becomes a lot more clear that we're not just buddies and you're helping me out, but I'm actually a slave to you, obligated Uh, and in bondage you to pay these things off. And again, debt is a form of bondage because what debt does is it limits a person's mobility and it limits that person's ability to take advantage of opportunities. I can see most of you aren't comfortable with this. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what it says there. It it says in the verse, the borrower is slave to the lender. What does that mean to you? I'm just trying to tell you what it says there faithfully here. In our men's Bible study, uh, they're studying the book Uh, The Man God Uses. It's an excellent book by Henry Blackaby. There's a good number of men in our church that are reading it. I'm so glad and discussing it together because I read it probably about five or ten years ago. uh, And the Lord really used it to minister to my heart in a lot of ways. Actually, it was probably about 15 years ago because I was still working as a school teacher at that particular point in time. And there's a chapter in the book or a section of a chapter in the book. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it again. But I remember what it says. uh, And the statement was this. The man God uses, the woman God uses is debt free. Now, in America, nobody's debt-free, it feels like, right? Dave Ramsey tells me there are people out there that are, but it feels like in America, well, you can't really survive in America unless you're debt-free. Dave Ramsey will tell you how. You can read his, his books and his materials. So anyway, Blackaby says that the man God uses is debt-free. Then he goes on to explain that because he or she, because that person is debt-free, if God put a call, puts a call on their life, they can go. But if they got three credit cards and a line of credit, and a couple of car loans, and a house, either one of two things has to happen. They have to wait until all those things are paid off, or 
they got to go through the process of selling this thing, selling that thing, selling that, paying off those debt, hopefully having some more, paying off the credit cards, and then they can go and say, all right, I want to go to Tanzania or whatever. You see where I'm going with that? And so the man God uses can get up and go, the woman God uses can get up and go if God calls that particular person to. And so at that point, it became a goal of my wife and I to get ourselves out of debt, to pay off our home as early as we can, to pay off cars and things like that. And everything doesn't always go as we would hope it would, but nonetheless, that's, that's our noble intention, uh, to go where the Lord may lead us. So the borrower is a slave to the lender. I would suggest this. It should be your goal to be debt-free financially. It says in the book of Romans, it says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And I think you can apply that to not having to be in bondage in any way. There was a fellow, I don't know who said it, but he said, most sell their liberty to gratify their luxury. Think about that. Most sell their liberty to gratify their luxury. And they become indebted or in bondage to that debt. And believe it or not, it can be done to become debt-free in America. It can actually be done. And again, Ramsey, he quotes all the time, live like no one else so that you can live like no one else. Because nobody's debt-free, it seems, in America. But the reality is there's plenty of people that are. And if you want to dig into that a little deeper, see me after, I'll, I'll, plug, I'll push you in the right direction. Verse 8 goes on, it says, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Now, the Bible's clear that what you sow is what you're going to harvest. So if you sow sin and injustice, the Bible is clear you will reap as a result difficulty and pain for yourself. And you're going to cause difficulty and pain for other people as well. But you, in turn, will receive that as well. And so even those things that you do obtain from your scheming, they're not going to bring the peace and the satisfaction that you hoped that they would bring. And so you take advantage of other people, you treat people poorly, or you treat them in an unjust manner, or an unjust manner, you expect that I'm going to get ahead. Everything will be great. The reality is you're not going to experience the peace and the satisfaction you hoped you would. The scripture says you are going to reap that which you sow. Now the second point of the verse comes from the second part of the verse. It goes on, it says, and the rod of his fury will fail. Now this has this idea, the rod has to do with leadership and authority and discipline. And so it seems to me the, uh, the idea that's being communicated is a person seeking to lead in fury and in wrath. You can typically get people to do what you want to do if you beat them into submission. But as soon as the opportunity comes for them to get themselves out from under your thumb, so to speak, they will. Or as soon as the opportunity comes where they can turn on you and have more authority than you, they will as well. And so the idea there, the rod of his fury will fail. It may work temporarily, but it will not continue to go on and work. It will fail, as Solomon says. What's better to do? So here you are, you're a leader. You're filled with anger. You just want to give it to people. Everyone's going to do what I'm telling them to do, and they're going to do it now. What's better to do is get your heart right and to bring your heart, those things that frustrate you, to the Lord and allow the Lord to make you into a loving, caring, influential leader that people want to follow, not feel compelled to have to follow. And so trying to rule in fury is a foolish decision. Verse 9 goes on. It says, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Some versions say has a good eye. Some say a merciful eye. Some just cut to the chase and they get to the point. And it speaks about generosity. And so this idea of having a bountiful eye is trying to communicate this idea of being generous. NIV, for instance, translates it just simply the generous. And so the NIV says the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. And so a person who has a bountiful eye is a person who sees needs and immediately asks themselves the question and the Lord the question, how might I be able to meet that need? How might I be able to help? Now, you're not always necessarily going to be the one to meet that need. But the idea is if you have a generous heart and you have a bountiful eye, your heart's going to be moved by those things so that you make yourself available for God to work through. The person with a bountiful eye has a soft heart. And from that soft heart then comes acts of generosity. What the verse says is he shares his bread 
with the poor. And the Lord says, he promises that such a person is blessed. The Lord looks there upon the person's heart and his actions, and he takes note of those things, and he pours out his blessings there. And again, the person who shares with the poor, the person that's generous, the person whose heart isn't closed off, but rather open, is the person that experiences blessing, and they experience a sense of satisfaction of being the hands and the feet of the Lord. Verse 10 goes on, it says, drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. The scoffer again. Again, the scoffer is the know-it-all. They don't need anyone to tell them what to do or how to do anything. They have it all figured out. What we can deduce here from verse 10 is that in, in addition to having a hard heart that knows it all and doesn't need to be told by anybody else, they're, they're closed off to receiving wisdom and knowledge. Notice, though, in the verse, they're also prone to cause strife and quarrelings. And the reason is likely that in addition to knowing it all, they feel compelled to make sure everybody else knows they, uh, that they know it all and to point out all the other things people are doing wrong. And so in doing that, the scoffer then sows discord among those that they interact with. So this is the person that, these people don't know what they're doing. If I were going to do it, this is the way that I would do it. If these leaders had any clue the society, any clue they would see, and it goes on from there. And before you know it, other grumblers are joining in with this person. That's right. Yeah, they are, or whatever. I don't know. They're like a little guy, apparently, or whatever it may be. And they're joining in, and then you have all sorts of problems that begin to develop. Now, Paul talks about the person sowing discord in one of the New Testament churches in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he says, don't have anything to do with that person. He says, don't even associate with that person. I remember many, many years ago, there was a, a fellow and I, we were involved in a ministry together. So we'd see each other a couple times a week and we'd get involved, do ministry. He was a school teacher, I was a school teacher. And every time we came together, he would tell me about his miserable students and this horrible week that he had. And boy, they're so obnoxious and annoying and whatever. And then I would tell him about my miserable students. I had Dan back then in class. Uh, and... But it wasn't him. It was his friends, of course. And then I would start grumbling and complaining about my job as a teacher. And so then we get out to the car, and my wife says to me, I don't like the way you grumble all the time about teaching with the other guy. Remember this? Yeah, she gave it to me or whatever. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And so it's contagious many times. You know, and it gets out there, and then you just start to grumble as well. Paul says not even, this is what he wrote, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And you go back and you look at the context, and it's talking, among all those other things that it lists there, the person that is divisive and sowing discord here. Now, the scoffer should be instructed, they should be corrected, they should be admonished, all those sorts of things. But if those things fail to work, then the, all, the unrepentant scoffer that is causing division and strife, 1 Corinthians 5 says, is to put that person out of your life. Even the church, it says, to put that person out of. Such an individual, if left to his or her own devices, can work untold mischief mischief among God's people. And so in order to protect the congregation, Paul instructs a strong statement there in 1 Corinthians 5. Because the result, as Solomon says, when that person is put out, the quarreling ceases. Now it sounds harsh, but so is treating something like cancer. And so you think about treating cancer, the methods of treatment are quite painful. But failure, and they're, count, like they're counterintuitive. You want to put radiation, what? No, you're not going to put radiation in my, no, we got to do this. Right? And the, if you fail to employ those methods, ultimately it will lead to the destruction of the entire body. And so again, it sounds harsh, but it, it's designed to protect the rest of the body. And so again, as the verse says, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. You don't have to be rude to the people but you do need to guard yourself lest you become like that which you're trying to guard yourself against. Verse 11, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. 
That sounds pretty cool. Most important thing I think a person can bring to their job is their integrity. I think that's the most important thing that a person can bring to their job. Now, of course, everyone needs to have their various abilities, those abilities that that particular job require. But in most cases, those things can be taught. You can get on-the-job training for most of those things. But what an employee, this case, excuse me, an employer, in this case a king, what they really need is a person that they can trust. And integrity, that which we can trust in a person, integrity comes from a passion for purity. And so if you do the right thing just because, for fear of getting caught doing the wrong thing, that's not a passion for purity, and that's not really integrity. It's good. You're doing the right thing at least, but it's not the ideal. Because the reality is, if the circumstances change to such a point where you could be guaranteed not to get caught for doing the wrong thing, then if that's what your heart desires, you'll likely end up down that particular path. So the person who walks in integrity is the one ultimately, for the long haul, is the one who has a heart for purity, or as it says in the verse, he loves purity. And so this person's desire is to do the right thing because it is the right thing. This person's desire is to walk in purity because they want to keep a clear conscience for themselves and a clear conscience in their relationship with God. And that's the type of person that the king or the employer or whomever is going to delight in because that person can be trusted, that person can be respected, they can be believed, and the king knows that their motives are pure. And so, as it says in the verse, the king will then look to that person bring them close to them. They'll become a trusted advisor. And as the king would do it, so will a boss or an administrator. or Anyone that's leading in any capacity, they're going to trust the one that walks in integrity. Make that your goal. Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. Now you look at error, and error seems to thrive for a spell. But the Lord always keeps watch over the truth. I've been listening to a book. I don't want to say reading. It feels like I'm being deceptive. Um, but I've been listening to this particular book. It's called The Evangelicals. And it, it traces the history of evangelicalism in America. I think it's awesome. I, I'm really enjoying the book. Maybe you might like it uh, as well. From pre-revolution uh, all the way to the present. And what's been fascinating for me to take note of is how through the centuries in American history, the Lord has unfailingly preserved his truth that it might go forth. And so here's what I'm noticing. There, there were times where certain movements within the Christian church were on it, and they were thriving, and they were winning people to the Lord, and they were solid biblically, theologically, and things like that. And then as time began to go on, they began to sort of drift away from their allegiance, if you will, to the solid interpretation of the Word of God. And what does the Lord do in this book that I'm reading here, this history that I'm listening to here? What the Lord will always do is raise up another. And he raised up another. And many of the movements, those revival movements in the United States, comes from just a group of regular people that are passionate for God and his word. And they say, Lord, make me, use me, make me, I'm available, I should say, and use me. And the Lord does. And these fired up people that are committed to God and his word, they go forth and many other people begin to get saved and so on and so forth. And so error moves in, impacts these formerly solid movements, but the Lord faithfully raises up others to come after them. And that's just here in America, generation after generation after generation for the last 300 years or so. But for the last 2,000 years, he's done that all around the world. And so whether it be Asia or Africa or the Central and South America or Europe or other places, he continually brings his truth back to the surface so that people may be able to interact with that truth and respond by following the Lord. He guards his truth day and night. He guards it so that it will never fail. And despite the raging attempts of the unseen world, the spiritual forces of evil to squash it, or the very much seen world, of higher criticism and, and these things that are out there, despite all of these attempts, the Lord year after year continues to preserve and perpetuate the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that awesome? And here we sit, 3,000 years later, studying the truth of the book of Proverbs. He's preserved his word that we might sit under it. 
Amen. Verse 13 says, The sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. I really like this verse. I don't know. I feel like I've said it like 14 times during this study. Um, and so we, we talked about verse 6 is one of those most commonly known verses. I think this is my most commonly referenced proverb during this particular study. Uh, and again, it goes back to the sluggard. And we know that the person who doesn't want to work will always find an excuse not to work. And if they don't have one, they'll make up one. There's a very real possibility that there wasn't a lion roaming through the city streets there. But nonetheless, that's this guy's particular excuse for why he doesn't get up to go. And the, the solution then for the sluggard, how do you help that sluggard? Usually as parents, we yell, get up, you know, you need to get to work or whatever, these kinds of things. But how do you really help the sluggard? Hopefully you've instilled into them, and the Lord has as well, a desire to be a productive and contributing member of society. But that doesn't always transfer over from mom or dad to the children or from teachers to the kids, whatever it may be. So what's the next step? What's the best way that you can help someone then is to leave them alone. And hopefully then their hungry belly will spur them on. And so we want to get in. We want to help. We want to make sure I take care of everything. So you're going to be good here. Well, you just leave them alone. No dinner tonight. Mom and dad are going out with our paycheck. You're on your own, 21-year-old son, whatever it may be. And so you leave that child alone. Hopefully their hungry belly, the discomfort of that, will spur them on, like we said in Proverbs, or excuse me, with the prodigal son, bring them to their senses. I need to do it. Then there's the whole reward of working hard and of receiving something and being able to take that income and be able to provide for yourself and for those that are in your care. And so in some instances, the best bet, or I would say, if not all instances, most instances, the best is to let that person experience the natural consequences of their laziness. You can chew on that and do what you want with it. Verse 14, the mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Now, when we talk about the forbidden woman, we've said this many times. Some versions say the strange woman. This is the woman that is not your own. So if you're a married man, any other woman is a forbidden woman, is a strange woman from the perspective of having that deep, intimate relationship. And so Solomon here then says that this forbidden woman, this adulterous relationship, notice he says it will lead a person astray into a deep pit. Not just any old pit, but a deep pit, a difficult pit to get oneself out of. And so that strange woman, that forbidden woman, her words might be flattering and alluring and drawing you to, the, to her. But as Solomon points out, the end is destruction. And his intent here is to warn us, to warn his son, to warn all men against the temptation to commit adultery. And to warn all women against the temptation to commit adultery. And so if you regard the welfare of your life and your soul, then you will take heed to avoid the forbidden man or woman. Do not deceive yourself. And don't allow yourself to be deceived regarding the temptation. Don't value yourself. And some guys still do this. Maybe ladies, I don't know, I'm not a lady. But many guys still do this. Hey, I can still turn some heads. People still looking at me, thinking good things about me. Don't pride yourself in that. Let that, that's in your heart, freak you out and scare you to the reality of your sinfulness. That you would be willing to trade your relationship with the wife of your youth or vice versa for this foolishness that is in front of you there. And so don't, don't deceive yourself. Don't think you're something hot because people are still looking at you or whatever it may be. In reality, run in the opposite direction because the longer you linger there and you play the little flirting game, the longer you linger there, before long your foot slips out and you find yourself down in a deep pit. And you get down the bottom of that pit and you're trying to get yourself out of that pit and you begin to wonder, how did I get, ever get to here? Because you didn't run when you should have run. And you, you opened a door you should have never opened. People can recover from adulterous relationships. And so perhaps that is your story. 
But many people can't. Most people can't. And they end up in a deep pit, which is very painful for those and all of those that are in their life. And so if you're playing around with those things, you're playing around with the idea of infidelity, wake up. Come to your senses. Because those seductive words of that coworker or that guy or gal at the gym that you just happen to know her schedule and so you kind of set your schedule up and so you'll both end up on the same machines or whatever it may be or that person you've come back into contact with on Facebook and you're doing that little playing around and flirting. Remember when we were young and all this sort of stuff? It's a trap. It's a trap that will trick you up and when that trap is sprung, it's nearly impossible to avoid and to escape. And so please, folks, heed Solomon's silent instruction. And, and he's saying it. And don't go anywhere near the forbidden woman or the forbidden man. Amen, good friends? For your good. It's for your good. Verse 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Verse 6, we saw that it's a responsibility of a parent to train up a child in the way that they should go. Here now we see why, because folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Folly resides. Now, when he speaks of folly there, he's not speaking of frivolity. Kids are to be kids. They're to play and they're to have fun and, you know, do what they're supposed to do here. When it talks about folly, it's talking about foolishness or sin. That's what it's speaking of here. And as we said earlier, the natural disposition of our children is to move towards sin, even though they're so cute. And, you know, you just love them, or you pinch, grandparents pinch your little cheeks and all that kind of stuff. The reality is the natural disposition is toward sin. We are not morally neutral individuals. There are people that teach that. Some people teach we're good. We're all good people. No, come on. Have you looked around already? But other people say, no, no, we're morally neutral and our society leads us one way or the other. That's not true either. Rather, there's a natural disposition towards sin. We are prone to sin in our works, in our thoughts, in our actions, all these sorts of things. That's the inclination that we are born with from day one. Therefore, children need to be corrected. They need to be disciplined by their parents. Even as you and I that are walking with Jesus as adults, we need to be corrected and disciplined by our Heavenly Father. Young children need that as well. And you leave a child to him or herself, you're pretty much ensuring the ruin of that child. And the reason is because folly is bound up in their heart. And if that folly is not dealt with, that folly will ever reign. And so then discipline, properly administered, in love, certainly so, corrects the natural tendency to go astray. Firm yet loving discipline is what the passage declares uh, to be of importance in a young person's life. Verse 16 goes on. It says, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And so the idea there is seeking to accumulate wealth by either oppressing the needy or using your wealth to curry favor with those that are wealthy as well, or those that are in leadership as well. Both of those ideas are wrong and not pleasing to the Lord. Thinking that somehow your wealth gives you permission to take advantage of other people is not pleasing to the Lord. James said this. This is found in James chapter 5. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This sounds like Old Testament prophets. It's that you have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Notice particularly verse 4. It's this idea that I hire these people to work for me, and then I take advantage of them by not giving them what I promised to give to them or anything at all where it may be. And what are you going to do? You're a poor guy. You're going to take me to court? Good luck. You know, this guy, I know everybody down at the, the courthouse or whatever. And now you're taking advantage. There is one that takes notice, and it says right there, the Lord noted. So your actions cry out against you, and you're storing up for yourself, it says in verse 3, treasure in the last days. Not good treasure. 
You're storing up judgment from God in the last days. And so the problem here, this might give the impression, oh, rich people, you better look out. It's not, the problem's not being rich. The problem is thinking that your status in life gives you the ability to mistreat and take advantage of those that aren't at that same status in life. And again, we see the Lord takes notice of these things, and he is not pleased. pleased. And again, I would add what I've been adding here. Any satisfaction that you hope to gain from getting that extra buck by ripping off the poor person or bribing you know, those that are already in leadership, it's all going to dissipate. Because as it says there, you were hoping to get ahead, but verse 16 tells us in Proverbs 22, where will you end up in the long run? It'll only come to poverty. So everything you were hoping to get from taking advantage of others, you're not going to get. You're going to get the exact opposite here. Now, I want to conclude one final section of verses, and then we'll wrap it up here. And this is verses 17 to 21. And so we'll look at those sort of together. 17 to 21 is the beginning, the intro, to a new section of the book of Proverbs. So starting back in chapter 10, going all the way to 22:16, you have these quick one-verse statements, usually not tied in with the verse that comes after it. All right, And that's those short little pithy words of wisdom that we've been looking at here. As we move now into chapter 22, now we're, we're kind of changing to a new section of the book, and so the style changes a bit. And so rather than having these one verse really not related to the one that comes before it, now we're going to have a section of verses where two or three verses go together. And then maybe there's one verse, and then there's another four verses that go together on a particular topic. And so we'll, we'll start to dig into them. This will run into chapter, almost the end of chapter 24, I believe it is. So starting in verse 17, let me read. It says, Incline your ear, hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. I've made them known to you today, even to you. Have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who uh, sent you? So incline your ear. So now he's also going to take on that style that he had in the beginning of the book of seemingly writing to a specific person, probably his son. And so you'll hear reference to you and you need to learn these things and so on. So whether it's a son or the pupil, essentially he's saying this, look, I've written these things down so that you'll be wise and that you'll then share that wisdom with other people. That's what he's going to get at with those particular verses. I think it's interesting that it comes in the middle of the book. I feel that Solomon has maybe the thinking that I have sometimes where, like, I've been reading this now, I'm doing my quiet time, I'm on chapter 22, and what begins to happen? Your eyes sort of glaze over a bit, and you're just sort of reading through, and you're not really paying attention. And it's almost like Solomon here, two-thirds of the way through the book, says, all right, everybody, wait. Make sure you hear what I'm about to say to you. I think some of you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you're like, all right, when have we done Proverbs? All right, I want to go on the next book or whatever it may be. And so Solomon says, no, no, don't miss what I'm about to say to you. He says there, listen up. He says, incline your ear. This is what a dog does. Maybe cats, but they're not like real animals. All right, I, I, like, I don't really like cats. I'm sure they're wonderful. But dogs do this. I see these with our dogs here. And if your dog hears a particular sound, a particular familiar noise, their little ears stand up. You see that? And then sometimes they like tilt their little ears to you. I can do that with my ears. I can tilt them forward. And my wife, she thinks that's like weird or whatever it may be. And I remember being in college, uh, our professor was talking like evolution or something or another. And I'm just sort of like sitting there. And he says, you know, one of the proofs of evolution, dogs can cause their ears to come forward. Humans can't. I said, I, I can make my ears go forward. And he said, well, you haven't evolved as much. I said, maybe that's the case, uh, or whatever it may be. So anyway, what dogs do, you know, they hear the cats maybe with the can opener. And they're little, they pop up. Our dogs, when the car starts to pull down the driveway, little head pops up his little ears, and he's, dead. he's blind now too, one of our dogs. So he's got to listen. Oh, poor dog, or whatever it may be. And so his little ears come forward here. And that's what Solomon is saying here, essentially, in so many words. Look, there's lots of noises and that's what it is in our house. Lots of noises. Everything is going on. People are walking around. Then the car pulls up, and my dog, his head pops up. And so there's lots of noises, lots of messages, things that we're hearing. And Solomon says, no, incline your ear to these particular things. Listen 
to what I'm about to say to you. And so then you, you shake off the haze and you're like, all right, wh- what do you got? And then he's going to sh- share that particular with you. Then he goes on and he says, now also, don't just incline your ear to these things, but hear what I'm saying. Really hear what I'm saying. This is that phrase I said earlier. Let these things, weigh it earlier in the study, let these things go from your head down into your heart. Don't let them go in one ear and out the other, but let them go down into the deep places of your heart. But even that's not the end game. So I want you to hear this. Block out that other noise. Listen to what I'm saying. Then really hear what I'm saying. Let it sink down into your heart. But then he goes a step further there, and he says, apply these things. He says, apply your heart to this knowledge. The only way these words will have any impact in our lives if we apply these things to our lives. And so when the Lord speaks sort of a word of wisdom, you're sitting there and you're like, you know, that, that's like that situation I had at work recently. Well, when you go back to work, change the way you handled it before. To according to these scriptures. That's the application of these things. So I think there's a lot of times we, we read this way, yeah, that's, that's good. That's really good. And then we go back and just do it the way that we've always done it. And that there's no growth in that. We're still walking on the path of self, but we just have a knowledge of the path of wisdom. Solomon says, no, take yourself from the path of self and get over on the path of wisdom. And apply these things, walk in these things, because that's when we will experience the benefit of these things. Just knowing them isn't going to do any of us any good. It's applying them that we discover the reality of these things and the blessing of God. And one of those blessings is found in verse 19. If you look, it says that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. So catch that, because it's as we apply the truth of God's word, as we walk in the manner of God and his ways, it's in that that we discovered the blessing of that which he said would come actually coming. So it's when we walk in humility that we discover that it's in the place of, the mil- in hum- the place of humility that the Lord actually lifts us up. We discover the reality of that truth. We discover that as we give ourselves to diligence and prudence over a period of time, that those decisions and those actions, they add up and they end end gaining for us the respect of those around us. It's as we commit ourselves to diligence and prudence. Everything that the Lord said would happen does happen. And when that happens, our ability to trust the Lord grows. And so that's what he says there in verse 19, that your trust may be in the Lord. Now I can trust the Lord for that next thing because I trusted him in this thing. And what the Lord said would happen, happened. And so now I can trust him in that next step, usually that bigger step of obedience over here. And our trust in the Lord increases. I think that's one of the greatest joys of walking with the Lord over an extended period of time. Because now you have a track record of God's faithfulness to rely on. We all know that God is faithful. The Bible tells us. And we believe it. But there's a big difference when you can look back and say, I know the Lord is faithful. Because not only does it say it, but he's shown himself faithful to me. Let me tell you some stories. And then you can walk in that from there. Your trust has been built up. Verse 20 says, Have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those that have sent you. Now those 30 sayings, some people think that that refers to the whole book of Proverbs. Now there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs and chapters weren't initially given anyway. I don't think that's what Solomon is getting at here. If you look from chapter 22, verse 22 to chapter 24, verse 22, there's more than 30 verses, but as you look at them, what you'll notice is there's 30 sayings. And some of those sayings might be three verses in length, two verses in length. So I think Solomon is introducing, when he says, I've given you these 30 sayings, he's introducing these next couple of chapters here of the book of Proverbs. And it's as if in revving up this next section of material, he's saying, look, I'm giving you these words of counsel and knowledge so that you can know what is right and true. Solomon's desire, and ultimately the Lord's desire, is that those who read these words would know these words and then obviously live by these words. This is not a mystery. I'm a new Christian. What do I do now? You know, I'm not really sure. Everybody has to figure it out for themselves. That's not a mystery. The Lord wants us to know these things and to walk in these things. 
We are a privileged people in the history of the church that every one of us can have access to God's word and God's wisdom in any room of the house that we want to, and we carry it on our phone anywhere that we happen to go. He wants us to know these things that we might walk in these things. The Lord's desire is that no one should perish, but that everyone should walk in the place of blessing. And that's, about, that's in being in right relationship with him. And then finally, verse 21, then his desire is pass it on to other people. So you've learned these things. We're not cisterns. Cisterns collect water, but we are meant to be channels through which that water flows. We're plumbing, if you will. And the water comes in and goes right back out and becomes a blessing into the lives of other people. We pass it on to others because people will invariably take notice. Your life is different. It's different from what I knew you before. It's different from everybody else in your neighborhood or at this particular place of work. First Peter chapter 3 says people will take notice of your life and they'll ask you for the reason for the hope that is within you. And that's an opportunity for you to sing your praises of how awesome a guy you are. A couple of you are paying attention. That's an opportunity to say you need to know the Lord is changing me. I wasn't always like this. I began to dig into his word. I began to grow. I began to learn. I began to submit myself and do what was right in his eyes and not in my own eyes. And he's been pouring out his blessing. It's an opportunity for you to pass that on to others and to sing his praises. And that's a really great opportunity for each of us, isn't it? Such a joy. And we talk about evangelism. You should share your faith. And sometimes we feel like compelled. I got to share my faith. Not that at all. When that comes, when people come asking you, it's just, it's just, from the heart. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.